Welcome to The Great Social Experiment, Episode 5. In March of 2018, Lance's blood clot, putting him in a very dangerous race against time to either fix the clot or surgically create a new access point. Hemodialysis, the most common form of dialysis, works by drawing a person's blood out of their body, purifying it, and then circulating it back in. Almost all dialysis patients undergo vascular access surgery to create a dialysis port, something permanent, a port underneath the skin to stick the needle into to access the bloodstream. Not to get too much into the weeds, but these ports work by surgically connecting an artery in a vein. Arteries distribute blood rich with oxygen from the heart to the body, and veins bring blood back to the heart. Now, what made dialysis machines in the 1960s in Seattle possible wasn't the ability to purify blood. That had actually been going on for a while. It was the ability to surgically create a dialysis port that could first and foremost be reused. You know, you'd used uh, uh, vessels each time to do a dialysis, and indeed on him we used, I think we dialyzed him three times and used three separate arteries and veins. This is Dr. Belding Scribner, who the world can thank for making dialysis an outpatient procedure, something that could be done multiple times a week, essentially making it accessible to millions of people around the world on an ongoing basis as it is today. In this 2002 interview for the Lasker Foundation, he's recounting what inspired him to invent the first successful dialysis port. We had this man from Spokane that was sent over as reversible renal failure and responded beautifully to dialysis. In a couple of days, he was up walking around and just looking great. Notice how he says reversible. Reversible renal failure. Because they couldn't treat patients whose kidneys had failed permanently. Just those that could heal on their own and just needed a little dialysis to get them through it. Before the 1960s, the process of dialyzing someone would destroy the access site during each session, which is why he says he used three different sites. Three times and used three separate arteries and veins. Three different arteries and veins, because each time they used one, they couldn't reuse it and had to move on to another pair. I know this will sound weird, but imagine you lived way out in the middle of nowhere and you had to completely rely on one small plot of farmland for all your food. And every time you watered a section of it, you'd get food, but the water somehow poisoned the soil so that it couldn't be reused. Eventually, you'd run out of land from which to grow, and you'd starve to death. Well, that was basically how dialysis was before the 1960s. The problem is that we humans only have so many sites to access our blood in a way that's viable for dialysis. So this procedure could only be done so many times before doctors would run out of sites on a patient's body and the patient would die. And then we did a renal biopsy, which is to take a piece of the kidney and look at it, and it turned out he had... Uh rapidly progressive GN, and he was going to die. They found out that this man's condition wasn't actually reversible, 
as they were told. And uh, so we sent him back to Spokane, and uh, uh, it was that experience that caused me to wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh my God, maybe we can do something about that. The sticking point to creating a reusable port was sticking. The patient's blood would clot on the materials the ports were made out of. But we had the good fortune at the time that DuPont had just uh, come on the market with Teflon tubing, and I had just by chance discovered that. Teflon, none other than the coating of your nonstick frying pan. Scribner's port was a first, and while techniques have only gotten better, clotting still remains a problem, especially for patients with blood pressure issues, like Lance had. It is no exaggeration to say that missing even one dialysis treatment can be life-threatening. Lance was 48 and debilitated by 18 years of dialysis, six times longer than most patients survive. And his blood clot had already caused him to miss more than one treatment, and he began to deteriorate. Without dialysis, toxins and fluids started to build, putting pressure on his heart. He was sent to a vascular access center for a surgery to fix the clot. Before the procedure, he was told that his blood pressure was so low that putting him to sleep would risk killing him. So they gave him Xanax and numbed out his arm. Only to find out that the clot was so serious he needed to go to the emergency room. After about seven hours of waiting, he was admitted. And by that point, his body was so full of toxins, he could barely walk and was hallucinating. From his hospital bed, the walls of his room looked like they were crying. For the better part of two decades, He had defied the odds. The chronic state of feeling sick, trips in and out of the hospital, flatlining during minor surgeries, somehow didn't stop him from working part-time. The will to go on when you're robbed of those years that most of us get to focus on career and family. But here he was, back on a gurney, listening to the sound of his heart alone. What he didn't know is that about an hour away in Eatonton, Georgia, a 25-year-old boy lost his life in a car accident. And even though he died, heroic doctors were able to keep his blood circulating and his organs alive. 3.30 in the morning, the doctor came in. He said, we got you a kidney. Got a match for you. Lance broke down in tears. The donor was airlifted to Emory, and he was kept on life support until doctors were able to get Lance's blood pressure and heart rate up. Then, teams of specialists were brought in, and Lance was wheeled into surgery. 
difference do you think Dr. Lee made in his life? A lot. Again, Lakita Jackson. She spoke to him. She talked to him. She was an angel to him. And if I could meet her, I would say thank you, because she did change my brother. When I said in episode three that it's almost irrelevant to speak to any doctor that did treat Lance early on, it's because what could any doctor say? That he was somehow less suitable for transplant when he was younger and healthier than after 18 years on dialysis? You got the kidney? Yes, I got the kidney. How do you feel now? I feel like I'm 21. I feel much better. More energy. So you do you feel like a normal person now? Yeah, now I feel normal. Um, I can do things. My blood pressure went up. It's like 120-something over 75. Um, can you exercise? Yeah, I can exercise. Now I, um, I'm about to exercise try to lose a little weight. Um, it's, it's nothing I can't do now. The heat used to bother me when it's hot. It does the opposite. It makes me sleepy and tired when it's hot. Now I can withstand the heat. I can stand out there and it won't bother me. I just feel like a whole new person. We began this journey. I am a banker. I am a surgeon. I am a lawyer. I am a physician. I am a labor leader. I am a housewife. I am a clergyman. With the committee forced to make heart-wrenching decisions because of a lack of resources. So much has changed since then. Advances in transplantation have made it one of the most incredible medical accomplishments of our time. The ability to literally give part of yourself to save a life. And in spite of that, the odds of getting a transplant today are about the same as getting access to one of those first machines at the Swedish hospital. We can point the finger at the supply of deceased donors and say it's because of a lack of resources. Or we can harness and incentivize one of the most powerful and limitless tools medicine has. Education is the key. After Eugene left that cold Seattle evening in 1964, the minister John B. Dara wrote that denying a person in a face-to-face meeting was near impossible, and Eugene was admitted into the program. But when I read that and think of all the healthcare providers that treated Lance along the way, face-to-face, who could have helped him, it's hard to believe that our problem isn't something larger than the perverse incentives of one field, but the values and culture of our system as a whole. During my interview with Lance, there was one thing from his story that made him light up and smile. Because I was on a private floor and he was there. His time at the very beginning at the Cleveland Clinic with Sheikh Zayed, the ruler of Abu Dhabi. The security was for you. No, it was for him. Are you sure? Yeah, it was for him. <laughs> okay. But I never met him, but yeah, it was security. <laughs> <laughs> what Lance didn't know, which I later found out, 
is perhaps one of the most telling and symbolic twists of this story. And that is why Sheikh Said was there. He was there for a kidney transplant. About five years later, a partnership agreement was signed for a Cleveland Clinic campus in Abu Dhabi. I would like to welcome everyone to the Subcommittee on Economic and Consumer Policy's first hearing. On May 4th, 2021, in the midst of the pandemic, the House Committee on Economic and Consumer Policy held an oversight hearing over a video conference on the urgent need to reform the organ transplantation system to secure more organs for waiting, ailing, and dying patients. As part of the hearing, our congressmen were given the opportunity to ask questions directly to kidney patients. One of them was a young woman named Laquea Goldring, Ms. Goldring, who answered questions undergoing dialysis at her clinic which is why you'll hear electronic beeps in the background. Let me just ask you one uh, short question, which is, um, do you feel that uh, as, a, as a woman of color that you are in an especially tough situation trying to get an organ transplant? Uh, yes, I do. Um, it just seems like I've been let down by the system because I'm having to advocate for myself. And as a Black woman, it feels like there's not enough education that's available on organ donation for people that look like me, brown and black people. So much of this series is an exploration of our response to financial incentives and race. But what's not always knowable is how much of our behavior is conscious. The idea of a doctor knowingly putting their own financial interests ahead of a patient's health or knowingly treating a person of color differently is something that's hard for many of us to accept because we draw upon our own life experiences and just can't seem to reconcile it. Personally, I believe that some of it is conscious behavior. An angry Black man. And I think a lot of it is a mix of conscious and unconscious or working within a system and culture that doctors know doesn't allow them to spend the time to do a good job, which I talk about in the next episode. But I also believe that a lot of it is human nature on autopilot, behavior shaped by culture and years of conditioning, which is also hard for many of us to accept because we don't notice it or feel it. But that doesn't mean it's not happening. You could, for example, ask every employer across our country a simple off-putting question, which is, do you value a man's time over a woman's time? And they'd adamantly say no, and probably genuinely. Yet the pay gap still persists. And that's a good part because, as we all know, it wasn't long ago that women were overtly and consciously relegated to a second class. And so that culture, even in the face of numerous laws protecting women, isn't gone. And it wasn't long ago that the field of medicine, like so many others, consciously treated people of color differently. The final episode of this series goes deeper into that, but our mistreatment of Blacks went so far as medical experimentation. And perhaps the most famous example of that was something called the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, 
It started in 1932, and its purpose was to study the natural progression of untreated syphilis in blacks. And to do that, the black men were never told they had the disease. Back then, there really weren't any safe and effective treatments. And what a lot of people don't realize is that it was actually started with fairly good intentions to better understand the disease and ultimately help, among other people, impoverished Southern black men, a community ravaged by the disease. The problem is that medical investigators at the United States Public Health Service and later the CDC purposely withheld treatment after the mid-1940s, once penicillin was widely available, so that they could continue to study the disease's natural progression in the name of science. And they went so far as to coordinate with other hospitals outside the study to make sure that these men were denied care for syphilis if they ever showed up. As you can imagine, when the news of this broke, it was met by outcry and congressional hearings. And then finally, in 1997, President Clinton took to the podium. What was done cannot be undone, but we can end the silence. We can stop turning our heads away. We can look at you in the eye and finally say on behalf of the American people, what the United States government did was shameful and I am sorry. The Tuskegee syphilis study lasted 40 years, which means that it lasted past Harry Truman's desegregation of the military, past Brown versus the Board of Education, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Civil Rights Act of 1968, all the way to 1972. And it wasn't like this was a project that was somehow lost and forgotten about. Counter to what you think, the government investigators actually published numerous articles and leading medical journals throughout the years. So this wasn't kept a secret from the larger medical community. But it wasn't until much later, in both 1966 and 1968, that real concerns were raised to officials at the CDC about the ethical implications of the project. Then, in 1969, officials at the CDC convened a panel of prominent physicians to discuss the issue, only to conclude that the study should continue without informing the subjects of its true intent. My guess is that if we could go back in time and ask any of the officials at the CDC or medical investigators if they have a racial bias, they'd adamantly say no, and they might genuinely believe that. But ultimately, what does it really matter to patients whether someone's behavior is conscious or not, if the behavior is happening? The mere fact of us recognizing racial disparities doesn't help someone like Laquea Goldring. No one can snap their fingers and instantaneously change our perceptions of race and gender. But how we design financial incentives, how we reward healthcare providers, the outcomes we want to incentivize, whether it's more transplants or anything else, is not only entirely within our control, but it may very well be the fastest and easiest way to hold in check and even correct the biases we're unconscious of. 
Um, are there other things that you'd like to just sort of record for posterity on this <laughs> on this tape? Are there any things that you'd like to record for posterity? Was the last question asked to Dr. Belding Scribner in his 2002 interview, less than a year before he died. Just the fact that uh, somehow we have to get back more into balance in terms of uh, the, the, the scar on my memory is this profit-taking. I'm not against profits, but it just became so ludicrous and at the expense of the patient. Mm-hmm. And it was the forerunner of all the problems we have with HMOs and all that. But one of the worst and earliest examples was the profiteering in dialysis. Yeah. I just hope that, that some way can be found to, to not have that recur. There are easier ways to make money than becoming a doctor. The path to medicine is long and unforgiving, which is to say that I've never met a doctor that went into it for the money. But that is very different than saying that the financial incentives our policies create don't influence how they practice. Had the financial incentives been more for nephrologists to get people transplanted over the last 20 years? What effect do you think that would have had? Oh, I think it would have made a a major difference. Again, Dr. Janice Lee. That we would have a lot more referrals. And I do know that they increased the reimbursement for taking care of home dialysis patients. So there's been more of an, an uptick in the number of patients put on home dialysis. The idea that doctors are influenced by money isn't new. It's the core reason that so many of them have chosen careers as specialists rather than primary care. It's why many of the best no longer accept insurance. And really, that response to financial incentives makes them human, just like anyone else. But what makes this story, kidney failure, unique is that it presents us with the opportunity to understand how strong incentives are. The beautiful simplicity of one disease that only has two treatments. The better of which isn't just marginally better, but light years better. The difference between surviving and living, which could save taxpayers billions and challenges the reputation of a profession widely assumed, especially in this pandemic. They are the heroes on the front lines. To have an unwavering moral compass. We're not talking about getting paid more for doing what's best for the patient, but profiting from doing less. But you should know, this concern, the catalyst for this series, didn't come from a hunch or some fringe sentiment, but by concerned doctors. And you know they're not fringe because of this. Well, thank you very much, Secretary Azar. And today we're taking groundbreaking action to bring new hope to millions of Americans suffering from kidney disease. It's a big deal. On July 10th, 
2019, about two years after Davida seemed to suddenly be posting more transplant videos on YouTube, President Trump signed an executive order that, among other things, will test different pay models for dialysis clinics and nephrologists. We will be changing the way that we reimburse Medicare providers, encouraging them to diagnose and treat patients earlier. Very important, the word earlier. Allow for home care and increase the rate of transplants. The final rule for the executive order is 433 pages long. And if you perform a search for the word incentive, it comes up 155 times. Our policies will save up to $4.2 billion a year for patients, families, and taxpayers. That's an incredible thing. At the end, President Trump asked a few kidney patients to tell their stories. One was a young African-American woman named Tanisha Bullock. As I journeyed through dialysis care, I learned that I had to take my care into my own hands. It was through my own curiosity and research that I found what treatment mode would best be suited for me. As I reflect back, I now realize that my healthcare providers failed me. This is CNBC, just hours after President Trump signed the executive order. Tavita really and other dialysis companies saw a sell-off leading into this announcement, thinking that if you see a dramatic increase in organ transplants and you see a dramatic move toward home dialysis, uh, that could be bad for these companies. I think that when we got into the weeds and actually saw what they proposed, it's going to take a lot longer than what was initially thought to actually get the change of behavior for home dialysis and increase the organ transplants, which is why you're seeing some of these names recover today. While the new pay models seem to be a step in the right direction, the largest and mandatory one will only be tested on 30% of doctors and clinics, and it will ramp up slowly over time, starting in the year 2021 and ending in the year 2027. Only one-third of the formula used to adjust the new payments relates to transplant, and the responsibility to educate will still rest with the dialysis clinics, whoever that may be. So where does this leave us now? So given everything we've discussed, not getting patients to transplant because that takes away from their bottom line. The clear benefits of transplant over dialysis. Every day I will pass out. In terms of quality of life and longevity. Given that patients are not getting the education. And if they were, more people would be transplanted. We would have a larger pool of living donors. Or at least have a shot. Long-standing racial and socioeconomic disparities. Given that when I asked you to describe someone on dialysis, you said that they were sick. Yes, for sure. And somebody who has a transplant is not. Not really, no. I would say they're pretty, pretty well. And given that the government funds all this. Transplant is actually more cost effective than dialysis. Is it fair to say that at present, we're talking 200,000 people that could be listed. Mm -hmm. The net effect of what's going on is that the American taxpayer is paying to keep people sick. Yes, I think that's exactly what we're doing. 
But what do you think that says about people in general? <laughs> um, Again, Professor Paul Ellison. Yeah. And I know it's a loaded question, right? But we as a society tend to, and rightfully so, look at doctors as heroes. But if financial incentives can muddy the sacred obligation of a doctor, what do you think that says about people in general? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I I think I would not be an economist if I didn't think that incentives are what determine most of our behavior. Um, I think we do all like to think of ourselves as being you know, altruistic, looking out for you know the needy or those who are in the hardest situations. But I hope maybe it's pessimistic, but I really do think that at the end of the day, if we can align incentives with the good of others, that's going to do a lot more good than, than if we expect people you know, to do what's right out of pure altruism. I think expecting people to do what's right out of pure altruism is, it's a tall order. So where do we go from here? Are there lessons we can take from this story of America's only experiment with universal healthcare to our larger system? You bet. And we start there in the next episode. The Great Social Experiment was created, produced, and edited by me, David Chrisman. It was engineered and mixed by Samuel Chacintu. If you like this series, please share it, subscribe, and leave a review. And if you want to support my work, or you're a patient in need of resources, or just want to learn more, please visit thegreatsocialexperiment.net. That's thegreatsocialexperiment.net. Thanks.